Welcome to the CrocCast Peace Studies Conversations convened by the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. My name is Anna Romandash and I am a Brembeck Fellow at the Force Freedom Forum. I am delighted to introduce Nadia Al-Ali, Robert Family Professor of International Studies and Professor of Anthropology and Middle East Studies at Brown University. Nadia recently spoke at a panel, Iraqi Women Speak, Promoting Women, Peace and Security, where she spoke about the women's rights in Iraq during the last two decades. In this conversation, Nadia and I will talk about feminist activism in the country, the role of younger generations of Iraqi, and ways in which international allies can facilitate or provide support to Iraqi women's rights groups. Thank you very much, Nadia, for joining us today. I wanted to open up with the question about Iraqi women's rights in general as an author of What Kind of Liberation? You did a very wonderful analysis and explanation of what it was like to be a woman in Iraq, to be a person in Iraq during the U.S.-led invasion. So could you maybe describe how the women's rights changed in Iraq over the last 20 years? Yes, I mean, I feel in order to understand the devastating impact of the invasion occupation, it's really important to put that in historical context. I don't think we understand the post-invasion situation if we're not going back in time. The most immediate historical context is the 13 years of the most comprehensive sanction system ever imposed on a country that is following the invasion of Kuwait on the 2nd of August 1990. Four days later, sanctions were imposed on Iraq. And those sanctions really contributed to a shift in Iraqi society with respect to gender norms and relations, but also in terms of material conditions. I mean, sanctions really led to the destruction of Iraqi infrastructure, particularly where healthcare is concerned, education, transportation, you know, in many contexts. And this is not because Iraq is a Muslim uh, society or because it's Middle Eastern culture, but we know that historically and cross-culturally, a society that is experiencing economic hardship Women are the first to suffer in terms of losing jobs, losing losing benefits, and we experience the feminization of poverty in Iraq as well. And prior to that, I should say, you know, just to give you a little bit more context before moving to the post-invasion period, is the Ba'ath Party came to power in 1968. And I think that while it is important to stress that the Ba'ath Party in general, and specifically uh, Saddam Hussein, were um, constituting a terrible dictatorship um, responsible for awful human rights atrocities. But the first decade of the Ba'ath regime was a period of economic growth. The welfare state was growing, the middle classes were growing, and um, you know, many women benefited during this time from greater access to education, from a push into the labor force, uh, from increased mobility. 
And so, you know, many women, even those who were in opposition to the regime, remember with nostalgia and a degree of fondness the 70s, where, you know, the things seemed to be moving in the right direction. The situation started to change during the 80s in the context of the Iran-Iraq war for eight years. Iraq was involved in this long drawn out armed conflict with, with Iran. And during this period, every adult male between the age of 15 and 65 was forced to serve at the front. And this led, similar to what we've seen in Europe in the context of World War II, this led to a situation where many women were pushed into uh, jobs and positions that used to be filled by men. So while, of course, no one, uh, I mean, people did not uh, obviously enjoy the Iran-Iraq war, but were women concerned, they did actually enter the public sphere in greater numbers during this period, but they were also really pressurized to be superwomen because Saddam Hussein came out in the mid-80s and said, you know, every Iraqi woman should have five children because for him, they, they were supposed to produce the future soldiers of, of the country. But it was really in the 90s that the situation started to deteriorate uh, more drastically. And then with the invasion, we had really a mushrooming of gender-based violence, all kinds of forms of gender-based violence in the context of lawlessness, chaos, the normalization of violence. So whether it's domestic violence, whether it's... Uh, trafficking, um, forced marriages, kidnapping, which often also had elements of sexual assault. So women experience also gender-based violence at the hands of militia in the context of a really a failing state. And, you know, for many years, neighborhoods were controlled by different kinds of militia who were targeting women, women's dress code, women's mobility, women's access to the labor force. So this is just, uh, you know, on one level, but on another level, since the invasion, we've also seen that uh, the education sector, especially the first decade, had been targeted. Many academics fled the country because they didn't feel safe anymore. So students, including female students, lost out uh, in terms of education. Lots of parents did not feel comfortable sending their girls to school or university because of the violence, the widespread violence and, and feeling that girls were particularly vulnerable in terms of healthcare. As I said, you know, the healthcare system was already really, really affected in a detrimental way during the sanctions period, but it worsened in the post-invasion uh, occupation uh, period. And this is not to say that everything was bad. I mean, there was a mushrooming of women's organizations following the invasion. There was civil society started to really flourish in the immediate aftermath. But, you know, soon that got severely constrained because of the sectarian violence. And also uh, later on, the really re-emergence of authoritarian politics in Iraq, where the government is at the forefront of repressing political dissent and quite a bit of the women's movement, although they're focusing on trying to address 
<clears throat> welfare needs, but also they are mobilizing around legal rights and social rights. And they have been at the forefront of criticizing authoritarian and corrupt policies. So they're again, once again, civil society activists, those who are critical of the government, including women's rights activists, are vulnerable in today's Iraq. You have recently participated in the panel jointly organized by the Kroc Institute, Kiyo School of Global Affairs, and the Force Freedom Forum, Iraqi Women Speak, Promoting Women, Peace, and Security, uh, where you were among four women activists talking about the situation in Iraq. Maybe you could dive in a little deeper into feminism activism in the country at the moment. Could you explain what what does it look like? What shape does it take at at this stage? Yeah, there are different strands of feminism, women's rights activism in Iraq. So historically, there was the Iraqi Women's League that had a close link to the Communist Party in Iraq, which was flourishing in the 50s and 60s. And the Iraqi Women's League at some point had over 40,000 members, which is it's large, that during the Ba'ath regime, there was no independent women's rights activism allowed. So you had the General, General Federation of Iraqi Women, which was a branch of the Ba'ath party. But in the early years of the Ba'ath, was still able to express some dissent and also some criticism towards the male political leadership. Towards the end of the Ba'ath, that wasn't possible anymore. Now, following the invasion, as I said, you had a mushrooming of women's rights organizations and you had really different strands of feminism. And I, until today, I would say there's not one specific strand. But you have, on the one hand, you have the those who are in continuation with the older tradition. So there is the Rabitat al Maral Gedida, the Iraqi Women's League, is again in existence in Iraq. It's not very big, but it does exist. You have liberal feminism that is sort of more focusing on representation, uh, that is focusing on legal rights. Most women's rights activists in Iraq are also involved in delivery of services and welfare provisions um, because it is such a dire situation where the state is failing to provide these services. So, um, you know, whether it's healthcare, medication, income generating projects, um, you know, dealing with things like access to clean water, um, that is very much part of uh, feminist activism and mobilization across political divides. Um, you know, you have some organizations that are linked to Kind of more political parties and might be they, they fall into the more secular ones that evoke international conventions and then you have those that are kind of more religiously oriented and they're sort of trying to use the kind of islamic feminist framework arguing that it's not islam per se that might be responsible for gender-based inequalities, but the specific interpretations of Islam that need to be challenged, right? We have uh, the Iraqi Women's Network now, which is a network of over 80 organizations 
And those organizations actually cut across many of these differences. So they are more secular, religious, they are all ethnic and religious backgrounds. And they're working together on some sort of key issues around, you know, addressing gender-based violence, uh, provision of welfare services, uh, and so on. And I should say then, there is, of course, another kind of major division, which is those organizations and feminist initiatives that are linked to central and southern Iraq. And then you have those that are based in the predominantly Kurdish region. And the Kurdish organizations are tend to be linked to the Kurdish political parties. But I should say that across the board, you have a new generation uh, of young women who are somewhat critical of the NGO model. I mean, they associate that um, with foreign funding. They associate that also with corrupt politicians often hierarchical uh, forms of organizing, often a kind of professionalization of women's rights activism where, you know, you can make a career out of being a women's rights activist. And while I would certainly not want to generalize, I mean, there is sort of a, a new trend of young women who kind of refuse the NGO model and are sort of trying to be involved in women's rights activism in a kind of more organic, non-hierarchical way. And that's something that we don't just find in Iraq, but across the region. Given that there are certain divisions, because there are feminist or women's rights organizations that are politically affiliated, and there are also organizations that reject or do not want to identify with any politics, are there many spaces where they interact, where they work together toward similar objectives, or do they mostly operate in different spaces? No, there is certainly some overlap, and um, I think there is a, sort of a growing consensus that is critical of authoritarian politics, that is critical of sectarianism, critical of corruption. And, um, you know, while there are divisions, as you rightly point out, you know, certain things, I guess, are sort of easier to work with across different political lines and different also sectarian or ethnic divisions. And these are issues around healthcare, gender-based violence, uh, women's education, the issues that get a bit more tricky are those around the personal status code. So since 2003, that has been a source of much struggle and contestation because Iraq had one of the more progressive set of laws prior to the invasion. When I say personal status code, I'm referring to the set of laws that govern marriage, divorce, child custody and inheritance. And uh, Iraq, uh, since 1958, shortly afterwards, when the new constitution was drafted, had a law that was, first of all, a set of laws that was uniformly relevant to Sunni and Shia Iraqis. And it did make it much more difficult for a man to be engaging in a polygamous marriage because he needed the 
permission of the first wife and also the set of laws granted women the right for divorce. In the aftermath of the invasion, there were attempts to sectarianize uh, the law and you know create one set of laws for Shia Muslim, another set of laws for Sunni Muslims, but also you know shift towards a much more conservative interpretation. And here, the, you know, there were differences. I mean, different people had um, different views on on this. So some issues certainly were much easier to work with than others. Given that the 20th anniversary of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq is 20th of March, it's right around the corner, mm -hmm. there is a lot of discussion, a lot of interest, as it usually is, toward Iraq, toward Iraqi women's rights. How do you think this conversation or this focus on Iraq and the rights of the women can be made more sustainable? So basically, how can women's rights in Iraq be within the news, um, mainstream news outside of Iraq? What can be done by international partners, academia, and so on? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I suspect that uh, what the reality of the situation is that this media intention is short-lived um, because, you know, we do have this anniversary because the, the, the truth is that Iraq kind of fold off the interest of international media and even, I would say, international organizations during the last uh, years. I mean, lots of other, of course, crisis zones and, and wars and um, conflicts. But, you know, given the key role that the US and I should say also the UK played in the devastation and destruction of Iraqi society, you know, I I would wish that that attention would be more long term and more sustainable. Also, I would say that it is Iraqi women themselves who are, you know, trying to resist to find creative ways to cope with the situation. And we should learn from them and we should ask them what they need from us as opposed to trying to impose ready-made solutions. And one of the things that I found very useful and have been involved with over the last 20 years, I mean, not so much in recent years, but until I would say certainly before COVID was trying to facilitate encounters between Iraqi women's rights activists and women's rights activists from the region to bring together, let's say, Egyptian, Lebanese, Syrian, Turkish, um, Palestinian women's rights activists with Iraqi women's rights activists because I felt and they told me that they have a lot to learn from each other and that the context, you know, is sort of more similar and more translatable than, let's say, have the Western gender-based expert come in and tell women, you know, how to start uh, gender studies at university or to run uh, an NGO. I mean, there's lots of expertise within the region. And I think that exchange a kind of more South-South exchange, not just with the Middle East, but even other regions. I think South Asia is really interesting as well, or, you know, African context. I do think that that's something that 
Western organizations and uh, governments could be facilitating more as opposed to be sending in, you know, their own experts. But yes, uh, I I do think that um, it's a very important point. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the way that things work right now, I'm not very optimistic that we will continue to see much interest. Of course, beyond a small group of people who have been following, you know, anyway over the last uh, two decades. What do most of well-meaning Westerners, academics, activists, and so on, get wrong about Iraq and women's rights in Iraq? I don't think academics get it so wrong. I mean, I don't, I mean, also working on it, I think, I feel that uh, they are generally doing a good job. I mean, obviously, it depends also on their specific, you know, political orientation. I think for myself, I have a problem with the tendency amongst feminist scholars, particularly based in the U.S., to try to explain away all forms of gender-based violence and gender-based inequalities in Iraq and elsewhere in the region by merely or by solely focusing on the role of U.S. imperialism and neoliberalism. And while I don't want to diminish for a second the significant role of the U.S.-led invasion occupation, and prior to that also, of course, the sanctions and also neoliberal uh, politics and neoconservative policies, I think it's really important to also recognize that there are regional and local actors who play a very important role. Uh, regionally, I would say in the context of Iraq, we see that, of course, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar influence that is playing out in the Iraqi context. Locally, I would say, uh, attribute lots of responsibility to uh, corrupt politicians. Many of them were the opposition politic uh, politicians who had been outside the country for 20, 30 years and then returned, and they returned with their sectarian agendas. Iraq is an incredible scandal uh, where corruption is concerned. Tribal leaders, militia, religious figures, criminal gangs. So I think it is important while we are, when we are based in Western context, while, of course, it is our responsibility to challenge Orientalist and sometimes even racist depictions of. Iraq, Iraqis, Muslim women, and so on, I think we should not do that at the expense of recognizing that we cannot explain everything away with reference to Western imperialism, especially the US. So, you know, pointing at the way that culture is playing out, the way that there are, you know, local factors. And this is actually something that activists on the ground often comment on they say well you know i know that you're trying to say well culture and religion doesn't matter because you're trying to counter these orientalist simplistic stereotypes but actually we are battling 
you know, with culture and not religion per se, but the interpretation of religion as it manifests itself. So I think holding that, that's a really tricky thing, you know, holding both pointing to the devastating impact of Western, particularly US policies and intervention without glossing over local, national and regional factors, complicities and responsibilities. I think that that is a challenge. Thank you. Uh, my last message would be related to something you've said earlier. You said you're not too optimistic that the attention will be there for Iraq, Iraqi women, Iraqi women's rights, which is true. You know, international attention is very changeable. But what is your message of hope related to Iraqi women's rights? Well, my message of hope really links to the not only the many women who have been resilient and resourceful and the women's rights activists to have continued to struggle, even at times when they were targeted by militia or by the regime and they had to go underground and they risked their lives. But my hope for the future actually is also linked to uh, the young generation of Iraqis who have been going out on the street in large numbers over the past years, um, the Tushreen uh, movement, who have been refusing the kind of sectarian politics that has been so characteristic of Iraq post-2003, who are refusing authoritarianism and who want to just really live, quote-unquote, normal lives. And I, I would say that also many have kind of moved away from party politics to express themselves, so they're moving to the street but they're also moving to the area of culture and creativity. So we've seen this outburst, this really kind of hopeful outburst of young people and also older people engaging in filmmaking, literature, art, graffiti, theater, music, trying to express their vision for Iraq, which diverges from the way that Iraq has been governed and conceived both by the US and by Iraqi politicians. Thank you very much, Nadia, for um, your time and for this very important conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.